Welcome to a Kessler Foundation Stroke Research Lecture Podcast. This episode features Dr. Michael Resnick presenting Delirium After Brain Injury. Dr. Resnick is a neurologist in the Division of Neurocritical Care at Rhode Island Hospital and Assistant Professor of Neurology and Neurosurgery at the Warren Albert Medical School at Brown University. He completed residency training at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and fellowship training at Columbia University and Weill Cornell Medical Center. His research interests include delirium and disorders of consciousness after stroke and other forms of acute brain injury, along with their impact on neurorehabilitation and ultimate outcomes. To follow along with the slide notes, click on the provided link in the description of this podcast. This episode was recorded on Monday, July 16, 2018, at the Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation Conference Center, West Orange, New Jersey, and was edited and produced by Joan Banksmith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation. For more information about Kessler Foundation and our researchers, go to KesslerFoundation.org. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter. Let's listen in. Delirium is a, is a special interest for me as a neurologist and somebody who works in the uh, neurocritical care unit because you know, I see a lot of patients in the most critical, critically ill part of their you know, acute brain, brain injured state, and I see delirium happen a lot. And I also sort of see, at least anecdotally, but also you know, longitudinally, the, the effect, the impact that it has on their ultimate outcomes and their trajectory. And I recognize that you know, before they can really be- get the benefits of a place like you know, acute rehabilitation facility like Kessler, there's possibly things that we can do on the acute side, in the ICU, in the inpatient hospital uh, setting, that may potentially even slightly alter their trajectory so that their outcomes three months, 12 months down the line might be improved. And so that's kind of my uh, context for my, my interest of it, and I'd be happy to tell you guys more about uh, about it. Um, but first, I want to start with some, some background uh, behind what, what delirium is. And so... You know, it says delirium is a syndrome. It's kind of a grab bag that's a constellation of symptoms. And there's many ways that you can sort of get to delirium, but there's, uh, you know, the, these foundational symptoms uh, um, that are very common, commonly found in these patients. And so some of these foundational symptoms are, uh, oh, no, I'm not seeing the pointer here, um, but that there's this kind of acute onset fluctuating course, um, you know, that there's uh, changes in arousal. Uh, disorientation is often the case, although not necessarily, uh, it's not necessary to be there. Inattention is considered to be a foundational uh, symptom for it. Um, delusions and hallucinations are often found, these kind of positive types of, of illusory symptoms. Um, disordered thinking is considered to be uh, foundational. And then other things that you can sort of see um, you know, some of the time, but maybe are under-recognized. So sleep disturbances both contribute to delirium in the first place, but also can be seen as a result. Um, there's also psychomotor changes, both on the hyperactive end of the spectrum, which is very easy to see. You have a very restless, fidgety, agitated type of person. Or else the less likely to be identified type of person who's just kind of laying there in, in bed or has very you know, a lot of difficulty in motivating themselves to move or moves very slowly and that's the psychomotor retardation that is that is spoken of uh, and then there's mood liability people who can't really you know they're, they're disinhibited from um, the way that they interact with others or their environment so these are some of the the um, uh, sy- symptoms in this constellation that help make the diagnosis uh, and just to kind of speak how it's changed throughout the years this is not something that is settled um, you know it's it's um, been a topic of interest certainly for 100 years, if not more than that, uh, but it's only re- relatively recently that uh, a psychiatrist who's this kind of falls under their realm 
that uh, they've sort of formalized what the definition is. And this next slide is kind of overwhelming. I don't go through, you don't have to read every single word, but just to get you a sense of that there's some disagreement and some uh, consistency over the years. Uh, but Dolier was first identified in the DSM, which is the handbook for psychiatrists, in 1980 with the third edition. And at the time, everybody knew that there's like some syndrome where there's this clouding of consciousness. People are, what is this, encephalopathy, or something acutely happens to somebody's brain. Uh, and this was the first time when it was formalized such that you know, there's some clouding of their consciousness. Um, it happens acutely. It tends to fluctuate over time. There's usually something that brought it on, some kind of or, quote-unquote organic disorder. And that has mostly stayed consistent uh, throughout the editions. Uh, there have been some additions to, that, to those aspects where um, you, know, you want to make sure that, it's not, that their cognitive issues aren't due to pre-existing dementia or some other you know, pre-existing condition. There's clearly some sort of you know, medical condition or intoxication or withdrawal state that has led to it. But the thing that has changed over time is what component of consciousness really is the foundation, the bedrock of what makes a diagnosis of delirium. Uh, and initially it was sort of this combination of you know, impairment and arousal and awareness to some degree. And then over time there's been more and more uh, focus paid to attention, the way that you are able to uh, focus on something, redirect your attention, sustain your attention, things like that, inhibit things as well. And then your awareness, that where you're oriented to the environment. And most recently in the DSM-5, it kind of has gotten rid of the level of arousal component altogether, even though it was also a, a considered a foundation uh, earlier on. So this has been sort of a point of controversy um, for patients in the psych psychiatric world, the geriatrics, the neurology, uh, and those types of things. Um, so based on that, in addition to the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, there have been multiple different tools developed to help with a diagnosis. Ultimately, just like any other diagnosis, it takes a clinician to do a focused and you know, real comprehensive assessment. Uh, but there are tools like the Confusion Assessment Method, um, which has also been adapted into the 3D CAM, which I think you guys use, uh, the CAM-ICU, which is the shortest version of that. Uh, it's frequently used in the ICU and has probably the most uh, robust literature for just the hospital setting period. Um, and it's something that's done in essentially a couple of minutes, um, and has you know, is very uh, good. Uh, has been validated in multiple patient populations. Um, there's also something that I like, also not quite as well known. It's called the Intensive Care Delirium Screening Checklist which I can go over a little bit more later. There's also the delirium rating scale and a bunch of, of others. Uh, but I did want to uh, delineate sort of what the CAM ICU looks like. It is an adaptation of the CAM. Uh, and the key feature is that there's, there's four features that you, in various combinations, need to have in order to be CAM ICU positive and probably delirious at that point. And the first step is that you need to have an acute change or some fluctuation in your mental status. If that's not the case, then the CAM ICU is negative and you're not delirious. And similarly, the CAM would be negative in whichever version uh, adaptation that you would choose to use. If that's the case, then you move on and you test for inattention. The CAM gives you the option to do it in multiple different ways, but they're all verbal for the most part, and there's some sort of subjectivity to it. Um, this sort of formalizes and gives you one option. The 3D CAM, I believe, gives you the months of the year backwards and, and the digits band backwards and things like that. But here it chooses the vigilance testing, which is essentially squeeze my hand every time you say the letter A, which is a very focused task that most people, the, the reason why they chose it this way is that you don't need to speak to be able to do it. If you have a breathing tube and can't communicate verbally, you still should be able to do this kind of vigilance task. So if that's negative, then you're not delirious. If you, it is positive, then you move on, and then you need to have at least one of these two. So either your level of consciousness, that's where that kind of comes in, uh, either that is altered, so you're not totally normal, like you guys theoretically you start at the beginning of the lecture, you're all uh, uh, normal consciousness. Eventually 
usually you'll get sleepier over time. Um, but you should be normal. If you're not normal, if you're either very restless or very sleepy, that's it. You're positive for the CAMICU and you're you're, the delirium is present. Um, if that's not the case, then you do all these kind of other questions. You ask these silly questions, um, looking for concrete thinking, or somebody able to, to um, you know, have abstract thinking. Uh, and then you can determine whether they have, you know, if they're disorganized or not. And so all these components in that kind of flow sheet need to be present to then be CAMICU positive and then be delirious. And like I said, it's been validated and specific in many populations, but we'll go uh, back to that in a little bit. So I sort of uh, uh, think about this contextually from the ICU standpoint because that's my training, uh, but I think it applies to a lot of the hospitalized you know, types of patients and contexts that, that we see um, prior to getting to you know, a post-acute facility like rehab or a nursing facility, but a lot of this also applies afterwards as well. But looking at the ICU with the most critically ill patients, delirium is very common and still probably under-recognized. At least a third of patients probably are delirious at some point uh, of their ICU stay. And the fact, risk factors for it are, you know, they're pretty stri straightforward, but still in some points under-recognized. So certainly age, you know, advanced age, older patients are more likely to become delirious. Um, there's this whole cognitive reserve hypothesis, patients with dementia or underlying, uh, you know, they don't have that same uh, level of ability. They're more likely to get delirious um, if they have a lot of medical comorbidities, so like severe heart disease or diabetes or all these types of things kind of add, uh, aggregate to the risk uh, of delirium. And then just their overall critical illness severity. So if they have severe sepsis or severe heart failure or any of these types of things, that kind of provokes maybe a stress response or something in the body. And then there's all the things that we add to them in the hospital and in the ICU. The, the medication use, the sedatives that I'm sure you guys are, are familiar with. Uh, and then the environmental factors that, you know, they're in the hospital for a reason so that we can monitor them, so that we can take care of them. But all these things, by the very nature of their intensity, also make makes them more likely to become delirious, so the lack of daylight and the frequent examinations. In the neurocritical care unit, we examine patients every hour to make sure that they don't have a change in their mental status, which by virtue of doing that gives them a change in their mental status. So it's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and then all this beeping and sounds and stimuli, it's very challenging. And you know, one of the easiest ways that I try to address this in a relatively stable patient is you know, give them you know, uh, earplugs or something so they don't get uh, as, as stimulated by all these uh, auditory stimuli. Uh, but definitely all these things are sort of under-recognized and contribute to, uh, to the, um, the, the process. So why is delirium bad? Um, the most obvious reason is that it contributes to mortality. Uh, again, I'm kind of citing the, the ICU literature, but there is a very clear change in patients who have delirium versus not delirium, that they're more likely to die over whatever period of time you choose to, uh, to look at them. So this is a, one of the first, uh, I think it was like 15 years ago or so, they, one of the first studies that looked at ICU patients and compared the two. And looking at this uh, survival analysis, you can see the bottom curve over here, which is the delirious cohort. Even after their first initial hospitalization, they are just more likely to die over the accumulation months um, compared to the non-delirious cohort. They're also more likely to have a significantly uh, longer length of stay, which is bad for multiple reasons, but it's kind of another indirect factor of how severe their illness is and what their risk factor is down the line. And so not only is it that the del delirium is bad, that it's more likely to cause mortality, but it's also that the duration of delirium might be bad as well. So this is sort of a follow-up study, a uh, similar uh, research group, and they sort of did sem uh, separate uh, Kaplan-Meier survival analyses uh, for patient groups based on how long the delirium was. So the top curve is, is no, zero days, no delirium, then one to two days of delirium, three to four days, and so on. You can see each one separates further, and the longer their delirium is, the worse their outcome is. Now, whether that's due to just these patients, this is sort of an epiphenomenon, their illness is worse, so that has more effects on their brain, or maybe they were sicker to begin with, and they just weren't as resilient. It's probably a combination of these factors. But for whatever it is, this is the association that the longer the delirium is, whether it's a marker or an effect, these patients do worse. 
not only mortality, I think that's the, the roughest and maybe least interesting uh, of the outcomes, but you know, certainly things that we're interested in are functionality, cognition, things like that. This isn't quite as elegant of a study, but another study looking at uh, delirious versus non-delirious patients and using an aggregate uh, cognitive performance scale where they kind of aggregate into like a T-score, patients with longer delirium had worse uh, cognitive outcomes over time as well. But this is certainly harder to prove because in general, you know, you have this post-ICU syndrome where people kind of do worse over time because of the whole critical state that they were in. So whether they were kind of pushed to dementia from delirium or just all the anesthetics, these types of things, uh, but there's definitely some signal there. So what, you know, you have a lot of ingredients here. What is it that actually contributes to the formation of, of the syndrome that is delirium? So there's a lot of uh, different mechanisms that have been proposed, and it may be a combination of all these factors. I think the first and most obvious one is that there's some sort of imbalance in the chemistry of the brain, the neurotransmitter systems. Uh, and based on kind of extrapolated from some of this is medication side effects, uh, like using anticholinergics, okay, that makes delirium happen, or using um, dopamine agonists that may theoretically make delirium happen. So people have sort of extrapolated based on that that maybe there's a decrease in cholinergic pathways or an increase in most of the other pathways, serotonergic, dopaminergic, um, you know, the, the catecholaminergic uh, pathways. And that sort of has shifted more towards the hyperactive end of the spectrum. Maybe with hypoactive, maybe it's more the GABAergic pathways. But there's clearly some changes that have been, that have been seen, and there's some um, studies, like very small case series of directly sampling the levels of catecholamines in these patients, and there seems to be a difference in delir delirious risk and non-various patients. What is interesting to me, though, is kind of combining a couple uh, possible mechanisms is regardless of where, which neurotransmitter pathway you're looking at, you basically have a deep-seated center. So whether it's in the basal forebrain or in the, uh, the brainstem, depending on whether you're looking at the dopaminergic pathways or neurogenergic pathways, whichever of these, um, and you have this deep-seated focus where these neurotransmitters are made, and then you have these very diffuse cortical projections. And you can sort of surmise that based on this, you can certainly have a structural brain injury that impacts anywhere along this pathway, and that alone may mimic or produce the syndrome that is theoretically due to an alteration in chemistry. So the additional, uh, uh, or an additional mechanism is that maybe there's some change in neuronal network alterations or decreased functional connectivity, and maybe it's a combination of these two things. And we certainly see that with people with macrostructural brain injury, that you, know, you affect the end organ, essentially, of these pathways, and you mimic what is otherwise a syndrome that is identified with delirium. So there was a very uh, elegant study done in 2014 <clears throat> by a group of anesthesiologists in uh, the Netherlands where they actually looked at this uh, um, functional connectivity in real time, where they used EEG data. Um, they uh, had this post-operative cohort of patients who had just undergone cardiac surgery, and about half of them had delirium based on their assessments, and half of them didn't. They put EEG on all of them. What they saw was kind of aggregating all this data using all the little squiggly waveforms that you see, you can sort of see what parts of the brain are synchronized with each other, looking at the phases and the morphology of the waves themselves and what the lag between the waves waveforms are. And this gives you this measure called the phase lag index. And so looking at the phase lag index actually should give you some context to this. So each of these circles represents a patient and the patient's head. The top part is the anterior part of the head where the nose would be. The, back, the bottom is the back of the head. This is the left, this is the right. And each one of these circles sort of represents uh, uh, the rows are delirium and the, uh, the top row is delirium, the bottom row is non-delirium. And so what they found was that this is the first finding, not super surprising. In the alpha band, which is the normal background rhythms uh, for somebody who's awake and resting, um, those are severely reduced diffusely in delirious patients. So that's something that we will often see. There's diffuse slowing, so, uh, so to speak, in the EEG. But I thought something that was more interesting was the directed phase-like index, meaning the, the flow of information that was, that was being captured on the EEG was actually affected 
in other bands as well, so in the delta and theta bands. And what they saw was that when you looked at this flow of connectivity, there was intact flow posteriorly, which is indi indicated by the, the brighter red areas, but the bluish purple areas in the front seemed like they were completely disconnected. So it's almost like the frontal lobe, which basically is represented by those EEG electrodes, was disconnected in these de delirious patients compared to non-delirious patients, which was a relatively novel finding at the time. And from an assessment standpoint, that makes sense. A lot of the inattention that you see may be you know, implicated in uh, uh, you know, that, that syndrome of delirium. And it certainly is a frontal lobe function. So in addition to that, that's, you know, these are great mechanisms. There's probably a combination, like I said. You know, there's probably some degree of systemic and neuroinflammation. A lot of these patients have breakdown of the blood-brain blood barrier, and uh, you know, there's clearly elevated inflammatory markers regardless of how you, how you measure it. Whether that's a sign or a cause, uh, um, sorry, a symptom or a cause, that's difficult to, uh, to determine, but there's definitely an association. Um, there's also higher levels of cortisol, so maybe something with the stress response, the HPA axis with the hypothalamus or the pituitary adrenal glands, uh, maybe there's dysfunction there. And there's also some, uh, perhaps some genetic predisposition where uh, carriers of APOE4, uh, which is certainly implicated in dementia and things like that, may have an additional predisposition on top of you know, their underlying comorbidities. So that's kind of delirium in general. What about delirium after brain injury? Um, the work here is a little bit less robust, and I think part of it is honestly that there isn't quite as much agreement on what constitutes delirium in, these, in this patient cohort. So there's definitely been studies done. Uh, a lot of these studies look at using the same tools that have been applied uh, you know, in the medical ICU or general medical or geriatric literature, and they saw that there is, it's common, very, the incidence varies. So you know, one of them was like 2 to 66 uh, percent, so it significantly varies, but it has definitely been described, especially after severe brain injuries like TBI or intracranial hemorrhage, things like like that. But I think that the question still arises, is this something that is a separate issue, or is it just an epiphenomenon reflective of how severe their brain injury is? And that's very difficult to disentangle, I think, because of exactly the, the issue of, oh, it's a frontal lobe injury, this person could have inattention, that's kind of expected. How much of this is due to this superimposed process, potentially? That's difficult to say. All these studies, though, they did identify very similar groups of risk factors, though. So this whole like, cognitive baseline behind uh, 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 prior to this event, you know, the cognitive reserve hypothesis. Now, older age is still uh, an issue, overall illness severity. Interestingly, though, there has been some associations, maybe certain neuroanatomic locations, perhaps you know, the right hemisphere versus the left hemisphere, although maybe that's because the left hemisphere is harder to identify delirium in the first place, so who knows? Uh, maybe the parietal versus temporal lobes. It, it, I think there's a lot of variability, and there hasn't been clear agreement. Uh, I would say that anybody with a brain injury is probably at risk of delirium. Uh, I think it takes a lot more of a sample to really pin it down to one spot. Um, but certain things that, that certainly contribute, things like hydrocephalus, which have diffuse involvement, uh, you know, very frontal predominant there as well, uh, intraventricular hemorrhage, those types of things. Um, interestingly, people's psychiatric diagnoses, drug use, things like that, um, for whatever reason, whether it's a withdrawal effect or their chemistry, their underlying chemistry is different, those patients seem to be more predisposed to having uh, delirium as well. And then certainly the same medical complications and infections as, uh, as elsewhere. So a lot of similarities, some differences. Um, just one example of a cohort that I, I was looking at back in, in fellowship training, we were looking at subarachnoid hemorrhage patients, and I explicitly didn't do delirium because delirium was measured by the, uh, the CAM ICU, which I thought there was a chance that maybe it was missing out on some patients. So I only looked at patients who were noted to be agitated, who had the hyperactive end of the spectrum, which is very hard to miss. And so out of these patients, the interesting thing to me was, well, first, they're typically on the sicker end of the spectrum, so the higher grade uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage. Usually it's early, but they're still certainly late onset delirium, sorry. Um, 
onset delirium. Uh, but for me, interestingly, is that only about half the time or so could you say, oh, this is due to an infection, or this is due to hydrocephalus, or something like that. Half the time, I couldn't clearly identify a cause. And in those patients, I wonder how much of this is just their underlying brain injury that put them into this, into this state, into this condition. So again, begs the question that I was starting to think at this point is, our current delirium screening instruments, the ones that have been used in every other patient population, are they valid in these patients with brain injury? And that's a question that's sort of been, I think, lying underneath the surface of a lot of these studies, but hasn't really been addressed with the exception of maybe this one study. And this study happens to be based in the Czech Republic. Uh, it's one that I've discussed a, a great length with a lot of people. Uh, it was done in 2012. And they looked at stroke patients in their stroke units. They did a, a Czech version of the CAM ICU. <coughs> and they, you know, they did these daily assessments in 129 consecutive stroke patients. And they seemed to get, get the sense that it had a pretty good uh, reliability. It was very specific. And it had a reasonably good sensitivity at 76%. But Almost half the patients were excluded. You know, out of the 236, only 129 were actually uh, enrolled in the study. And the reason they gave was because of quote unquote poor mental status, which I would argue is these are delirious patients that you're just not capturing in your cohort. So uh, you're kind of missing out on, uh, you know, on these patients that would most benefit from the study. So I think it's to pin all of the utility of the CAMIC on the study is a little bit tough. More interesting to me is there actually has been a study looking at the real-life practice of the CAM-ICU. And this is something looking at, uh, I think this is the Netherlands and Denmark, um, a combined group of, of 10 different hospitals and ICUs. <clears throat> and in various ICUs, they had an expert assessor, whether it's a psychiatrist or a geriatrician or a neurologist, doing daily assessments on these patients while a non-research clinical nurse was doing the CAM-ICU. And they basically looked at what is the concordance between these two. And what they saw, interestingly to me, was so overall in the total population. So first of all, the specificity was good everywhere, so over 90%, typically close to 100%. But in the whole population, the sensitivity was less than half, which is like flipping a coin. That's pretty bad, I would say. Um, also interesting was the subtypes of delirium. So <clears throat> hyperactive was never missed, 100%. Everybody catches those patients. That's not Those are the most high-maintenance patients that you could hear from across the street. But the hypoactive patients, less than a third of the time, were identified using the CAM-ICU. These patients that are just lying in bed and harmless, essentially, but who knows what's going on in the inside because of this delirious state. And then to me, most interestingly, is what about these neurology and neurosurgery patients? It was 17%. That's one out of six patients was able to be successfully identified with the CAM-ICU. And that's pretty bad. So that's, this is kind of the background of why I started wondering about, you know, is there some better way that perhaps we might be able to identify uh, delirious patients while they're in the hospital so that then we can have this uh, effect on their outcomes and their trajectory. So that's literally the first step. I wanted to go on there to their outcomes but I literally got to start at the beginning and how to identify these patients. So kind of a, a similar idea. This is a study that uh, I have under, uh, under review right now. Uh, but this is using existing data uh, called the MIMIC-3 database, um, which is a single center ICU database at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And they had lots and lots of data. The people, they kind of partnered with the people at MIT, and they just uploaded all their data, and you can do whatever you want with it. And they had all the CAM ICUs of all their patients. And they also had markers, various markers of consciousness, uh, which in, in many places, the Glasgow Coma Scale, the GCS, here they often use the, uh, which I'll, I'll get to later, it's called something called the RAS, which is also a measure of consciousness. <clears throat> and I'll talk more about that part first, uh, later. But first I wanted to just say, in general, what is the, the proportion of patients who are CAM-ICU positive, CAM-ICU negative, or unassessable, unable to assess, uh, in a group of patients with stroke, based on ICD-9 codes, or a group of patients with another medical illness, which I just kind of chose as sepsis. I think that's a pretty classic uh, medical ICU patient population. And after adjusting, 
even without adjusting uh, for uh, various covariates uh, and comorbidities, uh, the patients with stroke were much more likely to become ICU positive and unassessable. But after you adjust for all that stuff, they're over four times more likely to be either of those things. And this is a huge chunk of patients. So out of these you know, th uh, 3,000 assessments, a third of them were unable to assess in stroke patients. And you wonder why that is. We'll get to that uh, in a little bit. But clearly, there is there's some difference going on between these sepsis patients and stroke patients. So going back to the CAMIC, why could that be? Well, I think one of the, the challenging parts is well, first of all, so this is the most explicit instructions. You cannot uh, perform the CAM-ICU on somebody who is worse than a RAS of negative three. And what that means before I get into the RAS is somebody who requires significant physical stimulation to get them to open their eyes and interact with you. So that implies that there is significantly impaired arousal uh, and you can't assess attention in that case. <clears throat> so that's explicit. The less explicit part is what to do with these other aspects of things. So what represents an actual acute change or fluctuating fluctuation of this mental status? When they first have their stroke, it's pretty obvious. Oh, this person was normal and now they are you know, inattentive and they have impaired arousal. So that's an acute change. But what if they've been in this state for days and days and days or weeks and this is just how it is? How do you determine what's different and new on top of that? So that's the first uh, uh, difficulty. The second difficulty is how do you assess inattention using this method or any other verbal method uh, uh, implicated in the chem for somebody who's aphasic or somebody who maybe can understand what you're saying but can't motivate themselves maybe because of abuli or something like that, uh, they can't motivate themselves to actually perform the command in the first place. And so, you know, there's a couple options that happen here. Either you can choose to just say anybody who can't do it is positive, which I think is kind of random and I think is not the most judicious approach to this. Or you can just say all these people are, are unable to assess. And actually, the, um, looking at the, the previous data that I showed you, most of the time they were labeled unable to assess because of their attention. People could not reliably say what their attention level was. I think the altered level of consciousness is pretty easy to tell. You can either say somebody's awake or not, or somebody is difficult to arouse or less difficult to arouse. Uh, the disorganized thinking, though, is very challenging. If you think the attention is hard, if you ask somebody who's aphasic, will a stone float on water, I think that's very challenging to get the answer to that reliably. Um, so I think there has to be some better way of uh, you know, reliably detecting delirium in these patients. So just to kind of reiterate why certain symptoms might make it challenging, I mentioned some of them. So if your frontal lobe is affected, certainly if it's the dominant side, you might hit your expressive language areas. There might be a lot of executive dysfunction. So maybe it's not the abulia. Maybe they're so disinhibited, not because they're delirious, but because they have no frontal lobe anymore, they don't know when to stop squeezing. And they just keep squeezing your hand, or they keep doing the task that you ask them, but not at the same time, at the right time when you want them to say, to do it. So that is definitely a problem for these patients. Maybe they have such severe temporal lobe injury that um, not only do they have like regular run-of-the-mill memory impairment, maybe they have uh, uh, you know, anterior grade amnesia or something like that, and they can't remember the command long enough to perform it you know, 15 seconds later, depending on the complexity of the command. Certainly if they, as you guys know, you know, if they have some parietal lobe injury, if they have some kind of uh, issues with their sensory awareness, you really have to tailor um, uh, you know, the kind of command that you're asking them to do to have it be done reliably. So you really have to make sure that the connection is there to reliably get an answer to your question. The thalamus, I mean, that can do anything. So I, I'm not even going to mention that exactly. But you can have any hemispheric syndrome pretty much uh, depending on where it is. I think the ARAS uh, or biohemispheric uh, injury is very interesting also because you kind of expect at that point that there's going to be some impairment of consciousness. How much of that is going to be new and different 
acutely over like a chronic disorder of consciousness. And then I think a very challenging situation also is, what if somebody has locked-in syndrome from you know, central pontine injury or something like that, and the only way that they can communicate is by blinking their eyes. Clearly they're arous they have arousal, they're awake, clearly they're paying attention to you, but how are you going to do any of these tests to say, yep, they clearly have verbal attention. That's very challenging. So this is just some of the possible options of why it might be difficult to make the diagnosis. And so to go back to this constellation of, of uh, symptoms, so there's certain things that I think you cannot reliably check in everybody. I mean, you ideally want to have a tool that anybody can use in any situation. So I think disorientation is very difficult to check in a lot of these patients, if they're aphasic, if they're abulic, any of these types of things. <clears throat> Inattention certainly I think is going to be difficult based on those tests that exist. Uh, I think delusions and hallucinations, if they can't actually tell you what they're feeling, unless you see them kind of grasping in the air and seeing these symptoms, that's going to be very challenging also. And disordered thinking, I think, is very challenging. But I would argue that you can see when somebody's asleep or awake, so you can track what their sleep cycle is. You can certainly see how restless they are, how, not, you know, how, much, how little they move. So you can definitely track their psychomotor changes without their uh, uh, you know, co collaboration with your examination. You can see what their face looks like for signs of mood liability. And then most importantly, you can see see whether they fluctuate, whether there's an acute change, and what their change or, uh, level of arousal is. And that's something that I think can be generally checked in pretty much anybody, and certainly can help with this foundation of delirium in a brain-injured patient. So this is kind of more recent uh, that I just finished uh, doing this uh, prospective cohort of patients with uh, intracerebral hemorrhage. <coughs> but I basically, uh, basically enrolled like, consecutive uh, uh, patients over a four-month period. And there were 61 patients with hemorrhagic stroke who spoke English and who didn't have withdrawal of care within uh, the first 24 hours. And I did over 250 assessments on them for every day while they were in the ICU or while they were in the, the intermediate care stroke unit. And I just wanted to see what is their prevalence of delirium-related symptoms uh, in any situation. And so some interesting things uh, that, that you, I would uh, point your attention to. So uh, UTA is unable to assess. I would say for me the first thing that's interesting is there are certain things that we're never unable to assess. I could always tell when there was a change. Granted I'm used to these patients so that maybe takes a little bit of training. But I always knew when there was a change. I always knew when there was uh, impaired arousal. I always could tell whether there was psychomotor slowing or not. This was never unable to assess. <clears throat> and I always knew what their sleep-wake cycle was. The things that I didn't know that I had difficulty with were the attention components. That was, I think, the most prominent, considering that's based on the DSM, now the primary diagnostic criteria for delirium. And so if you looked at the verbal assessments only, whether it's because of aphasia, about 30% of these patients had at least some mild to moderate aphasia. About a third of these assessments and a third of patients could not be done based on verbal assessments alone. So I had to rate them as unassessable. Um, but if I kind of started using these nonverbal types of techniques where I maybe you know, use auditory stimuli and visual stimuli and look to see how they track and move their eyes and were they able to sustain attention, things like that, that unassessability decreased significantly down to a point where for, in most cases I could tell you know, whether it was there or not. And then the other thing is disorientation, I think, was very challenging to assess hallucinations, delusions, things like that. <clears throat> but if this is going to be the key piece of delirium, I think we have to have a better sense of how do we assess that in, uh, in this patient population. So then splitting this up on who I considered, so based on this quote-unquote expert assessment, whether you know, I consider myself an expert or not, that's uh, debatable, but I did an assessment, had the nurse involved, talked to the family, did a chart review, did all these types of things just to see what's been going on for the last 24 hours, and then determine was this patient delirious or not delirious. And then splitting up based on that, you could see that in all these delirious patients, they, had, they all had a new change of fluctuation. Uh, <clears throat> most of the time you could tell, if I included the verbal or visual assessment, 84% of the time they clearly had signs of inattention, whereas only half the time I could tell based on verbal assessment that they had an attention. 
On the other end of the spectrum, only 11% of these patients who were non-delirious had inattention, but that's still patients who otherwise would be considered delirious based on other, uh, other methodologies. So there's definitely a lot of uh, uh, you know, reliability that's in question when, when you have such a high pr um, uh, prevalence of these issues to begin with, and then you have difficulty separating the two based on what their underlying uh, um, symptoms are supposed to be. <clears throat> and you can see a lot of these other symptoms are very unlikely to be found in uh, non-delirious patients. So people with, uh, who don't have delirium very unlikely to have sleep-wake disturbances, very unlikely to have psychomotor changes, whether it's agitation or, or uh, inactivity. So using those types of things that are always able to assess, theoretically should be able to reliably tell you the difference between a delirious or not delirious patient. It's just, are you able to pick it up with enough uh, sensitivity? So that's the big question mark. So then that, this is the kind of more of an exploratory question. So I also did the CAM ICU with these patients. I also did the intensive care delirium screening checklists uh, with these patients. So uh, let me tell you about that. That's relative to the CAM ICU. It's more of an inclusive approach. So it gives you that whole constellation. It gives you eight of those symptoms. And you only need to have four of them to be positive, at least four. And you would consider that patient delirious based on that assessment. <clears throat> so based on those things, uh, the CAM ICU had pretty bad sensitivity. Uh, the way, when I was doing it, it only had about 40% sensitivity using a judicious approach, meaning somebody who can't follow commands is automatically unassessable. If I chose to say everybody's positive, if, whether I could assess them or not, even then, still relatively not great sensitivity. But I think that using that kind of approach um, is not, you know, flipping a coin isn't really the way that you should be diagnosing something like this. Uh, interestingly, the more inclusive approach uh, using the ICDSE was much more sensitive and also very specific. And then for me, my favorite thing, but also something that's, you know, I recognize the bias of, if you only look at their level of consciousness, if you look at something like the RAS, which I'll go over in a sec, um, or the Glasgow Coma Scale, and you look at the fluctuations over time, that was actually the most sensitive in terms of what, con what I consider to be delirious in, the, in that patient population. So certainly something worth investigating uh, in the future. <clears throat> So what is the RAS? So this is a, a tool that was initially used to um, help titrate sed sedating medications in the ICU. So anesthetics, you know, things like propofol, midazolam drips, things like that, just to get a sense of you know, what is the minimum amount of medication we need to keep somebody comfortable but not too, too sedated. And so the nice thing about it is that it's a 10-point scale. The normal is zero. Um, so that's where we started. Some of us are probably in the negatives right now. Um, but anything in the positive range is going to be somewhat restless. So plus one is just kind of anxious, you know, fidgety, things like like that plus four is somebody who is violently combative and needs security people to come over and they're punching people and things like that uh, and then you start going down to the negative range minus one is somebody who's drowsy but you you, you talk to them they wake up and they stay awake and you go down eventually, you know, it takes them more and more to stimulate them. It takes them, uh, you know, they stay awake for less and less time. And eventually you get to a point where you're at RAS negative five, which is you're completely comatose. There's no evidence of, of clinical signs of arousal. <clears throat> so this is nice to see because it's something that we sort of check in the ICU anyway. And so what if you just did this over time and correlated this with uh, what you consider to be a delirious or non-delirious patient? So using that uh, mimic data from before with the sepsis and stroke patients, actually did this sort of analysis looking at who the nurses considered to be CAM-ICU positive, CAM-ICU negative, and unable to assess, and just looked at the variability of their RAS scores over time. <clears throat> and so the, in these two columns, so the, the first one is uh, A, is the, the mean of their RAS scores. They're so generally what their baseline mental status was, their level of arousal. And then the second one, B, is the standard deviation. In other words, a marker of the variability of their RAS over time. And the blue uh, patients are the patients with sepsis, and the red are those with stroke. <clears throat> 
And you can see the ones who are ChemICU negative, relatively normal uh, or you know, in the normal range of level of arousal and relatively little vari variability. Uh, the patients with, uh, who are ChemICU positive in both cases still pretty close in terms of their uh, baseline level of arousal. They're still maybe just slightly sleepy, but much more variability in both the sepsis and stroke patients. But then you look at the unable to assess patients who otherwise in many cases should be able to be assessed. <clears throat> and they certainly had a lower baseline level of arousal, although most of the time they still were above that negative three that you need to have to theoretically be able to do the CAM-ICU, but much, much, much more variability in the stroke patients compared to the sepsis patients. And I suspect that means that there's some degree of uh, patients that were missing who might have delirium that CAM-ICU is just not designed to capture. And I sort of did this um, you know, uh, kind of predictive model based on just using their variability in other covariates, and about a third of these patients who are rated CAM-ICU unable to assess are actually positive or would be positive for delirium if you only use their fluctuations alone. So that's a lot of patients that you're potentially missing out on. <clears throat> so just to give you a, kind of a representative uh, patient on this, <clears throat> this was a patient with subarachnoid hemorrhage that I tracked over time. Uh, this is a very, very obvious one. So again, this is the using the Richmond agitation sedation scale, 10-point scale. This is zero right here. And tracking them, their fluctuations over time over the first 10 days of their hospitalization. And you see there's wild fluctuations that I think would be pretty obvious for most people to see. And so I think especially when they go into the positive range, they get very restless, they're agitated, that's easy enough. What I'm curious about though is what about like these types of ranges where they're under the surface and they're more under the surface and then they're harder to arouse and less harder to arouse. And I would argue that in many cases this type of patient may still be delirious and you're just missing out on them because you can't quite do a good uh, uh, you know, CAM ICU or CAM type of exam on them. <clears throat> so using data like that, using a cohort of, of uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage patients back at uh, Columbia during my training, <clears throat> I basically looked at all these patients that I had done in the previous study and just looked at their RAS trends over time. And I was curious, you know, is there any effect on outcome based on, forget what you're calling delirium or not, what about just this fluctuation of consciousness? And looked at their RAS variability over time. And so what I found was that, um, Interestingly, the actual duration of their agitation did not have an effect on their outcomes. If it did, it may even have improved their outcomes. Like these are patients who otherwise should be comatose, but somehow, for whatever reason, were starting to awake from their coma and were starting to be agitated. But for these patients who probably often got sedatives and other types of agents to keep them calm, if they were very variable with their RAS score, <clears throat> then that was contributory to a worse uh, outcome, functional outcome, using the modified Rankin scale. And this is kind of a pictorial representation where this is uh, stratified based on good outcomes versus bad outcomes. Blue is good outcomes, red is bad outcomes. <clears throat> and the y-axis is the duration of agitation in hours, and the x-axis is the, the number of days of high variability. And you see a lot of these patients who have very good outcomes, they don't have very much variability, even if they have a lot of, you know, their, their duration of hyperactive delirium is, is long. But the further out you get, you have some bad outcomes come in as you get um, further along on the x-axis. So definitely something that we're cognizant of, of over-treating these patients and basically causing them to enter a hypoactive state <coughs> of delirium. So to go back to um, you know, trying to diagnose these patients, so I kind of mentioned the fluctuation of consciousness, but there's still a lot of controversy of this, and especially with the DSM-5, people disagree that that's enough to diagnose uh, delirium. That's fine. I, I think that certainly there's going to be, actually there's uh, studies that have shown that there's a lot of concordance between the two. 
But I would actually argue on the other end, there's patients who are comatose that there's functional MRI studies that indicate maybe they have covert consciousness or something like that if you give them some sort of test to do. Um, so I would argue that if you're really set on testing attention, then there's other ways that you theoretically could do it. So if you are interested in sustained attention, then you just look to see, are they able to visually focus and fixate on an object over time? Can they track? Can they do these types of things? Um, if you're looking at selective attention, can you have multiple people speak to somebody or have multiple stimuli and they, focus, they, they fixate in one and they move on to the other, or they fi fixate in one and go on to the other one? That's sort of switching attention also. So there's ways that you can uh, you know, explicitly say that you have tested attention without using the, you know, the conventional techniques that have been used up until this time. So what I've sort of uh, been working on is a sense of more of a hierarchy of what they're able to do and finding their best, you know, their, their maximum baseline. What have they been able to do and what have they, are they no longer able to do? So I think a normal person in the audience, you know, you should be able to do a pretty complex backward task, whether it's you choose to do a digit span backwards or months of the year backwards or one of these types of things. But I would say most of the time, the vast majority of this, the patients that I take care of can't do that. And I would say the mass, vast majority of the time, they can't even do a forwards task like that. So asking them to do a digit span forwards or spell something forwards, it would be very challenging to do. But sometimes they can follow commands, and sometimes that changes over time. You know, I saw them four hours ago, and they were able to do something very complex, like show me the two fingers on their left hand and then touch their ear or something like that, and now they can't do that anymore. I would say that rather than thinking of it as a neurosurgeon where, oh, they can't follow commands anymore, they're now inattentive. They're not really focusing and being able to do the, the tasks that they were previously able to do. And even for those aphasic patients who can't do that, <clears throat> if they had this sort of visual fixation and purposeful gaze and tracking, and then they no longer have it because their consciousness has, has diminished, I would say that is a sign of inattention as well. So I think that's something that I'm, I'm very interested in, in looking at over time. Does this kind of hierarchy of inattention or testing for attention <clears throat> change the way that uh, these patients do and the reliability of delirium testing? So, and that also begs the question of, uh, you know, what is the purpose of all this? And I think that uh, certainly the end game is to figure out something that we can do to impact outcomes. To, so identifying these patients better and improving their trajectory in the way that they can, uh, uh, you know, uh, recover in rehab or even getting them to rehab in the first place. But it begs the question, is, is all delirium created equal? And part of that is, you know, that there's many causes for delirium in the first place. It's kind of a grab bag. It's uh, very heterogeneous uh, in terms of uh, the things leading up to it. How much of this is just in the initial brain injury itself, the part of the brain that was affected, or you know, maybe the connections that are available to that person. How much of it was other things that we did to them? Maybe they received neurosurgery or some other procedures just a longer time in the ICU and they didn't have a chance to really reorient themselves to something more uh, you know, hospitable to them. <clears throat> Maybe all this you know, uh, accumulation of, of medications that we use, you know, all kinds of sedations, and you know, even the, you know, one of the common uh, medications that we use in the, uh, in the ICU are like antipsychotics. I'm sure everybody's uh, aware, probably better than I am, the effect that that can have on functional and motor recovery or cognitive recovery after a brain injury. Uh, so all these things certainly affect, uh, can have an effect on outcome, and the question is how much of this is independent due to uh, delirium, and is there a way to sort of tease these things apart? <clears throat> I sort of already mentioned that the neurologic deficit itself, uh, you know, has its, uh, its own effects, and will broadening the scope of what you consider delirium, will that allow you to identify these patients better and identify patients who otherwise would have had a worse outcome if you hadn't known that they were delirious? <clears throat> and then certainly the phenotyping, this is something that I'm interested in as well, of telling the difference between hyperactive and hypoactive. Knowing that the, you know, the agitated patients are very easy to see, uh, the hypoactive ones, I think there's room for improvement for us to, uh, to, uh, to do things for. 
So future directions. Um, so it, the immediate thing that uh, I'm planning on doing over the next year, uh, this is a study that I'm going to be starting hopefully in the next couple of weeks. Um, so just developed a new tool uh, for, for based on this information and the data that I've accumulated, a new tool for specifically the bedside nurses <coughs> and clinicians to use to help more reliably detect delirium. Uh, the reason for this being that, uh, you know, on the one hand, things like the CAM-ICU, these are kind of screening tools. They help you diagnose delirium, but shouldn't be in and of themselves used to make the diagnosis. But at the same time, I also recognize I'm only with the patient once a day or twice a day, and the nurse is there every hour, every couple of hours, and they really get to know this, uh, the patient. So I want to really harness their intuition, their, their uh, understanding of what they've seen over the course of the shift or the day or the you know, uh, multiple days uh, strung, strung together uh, to get a sense of this is a change, and this change means that this patient is delir uh, delirious. <clears throat> And then I'd like to identify specifically the effects that delirium has based on the phenotypes. Uh, I, I think that it's a little bit too convenient to say that there's just the hyperactive end and just the hypoactive end and forget about all the stuff in the middle. Whereas I think most of the time it's actually the stuff in the middle and you just happen to catch them when they're hyperactive. But when they're quiet, maybe because they're sedated or you know, they're, you know, their sleep-wake cycle is, uh, is inverted in some way, they have this, these hypoactive parts that we're also missing out on. And then certainly the different aspects of recovery, you know, I'm particularly interested in motor recovery, but certainly the cognitive aspects, the overall functional aspects and uh, coordinating all of these things uh, with their disabilities. And then for me, the, uh, uh, I'm very interested in both the kind of the atrogenesis that we cause in these patients, so over-sedating them because they're agitated, giving them all these you know, dopaminergic or anti-dopaminergic agents or uh, benzodiazepines, things that I know from animal studies worsen outcomes, and yet we're giving these patients to help immediately during the acute phase. Is there anything else that we can do for these patients, and what is the effect that these medications have? And then are there any other treatments uh, to use for patients with hypoactive delirium? Maybe we should stimulate them a little bit or do something else for them to mobilize them a little bit more so that rather than going to you know, a nursing facility and never really uh, you know, develop that improvement during their peak plasticity window, giving them the best chance that they can have to you know, motivate themselves to participate a little bit more and, and benefit from rehab. For more information about Kessler Foundation and our researchers, go to KesslerFoundation.org. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter.